Take our Bibles, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 to start things off today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Did you hear that too? Did you hear that noise in there? It must have been a motorcycle or something. I thought it was somebody's hearing aid. <clears throat> no. <laughs> Remember how that was years ago? Those hearing aids would be like, Whoo! Remember that? We don't have that no more. You don't hear those anymore. Yeah, they, all we hear now in the, in the church now is growling stomachs. <clears throat> how, how do you like that? Have you ever been in a meeting or something or, you know, you're talking to somebody and it's like so obvious and your stomach's going crazy and you're thinking, man, oh, that's terrible, isn't it? I'm telling you. All right, anyway, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Of course, the Bible says, pray without ceasing. And we've been addressing and dealing with this issue of marriage and making it simple. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with communication. Well, God wants to communicate with us, and as a result, uh, obviously, he wants us to communicate with one another, especially in our relationship and our marriages. And so we began talking a little bit about uh, that communication, and we noted some suggestions and said, first of all, turn the TV off, place your phones on silent, and close your laptops. Number two, sit across from each other or side by side. We, con- we continued to state, be careful not to monopolize the conversation. We then turned around and uh, started by talking about the fact that we need to be uh, good, good listeners, <clears throat> how important being a good listener is. And then we went to number four, Control your emotions. Number five, avoid topics that trigger emotional outbursts. Number six, keep it civil and considerate. And that's where we left off, and so we want to continue tonight by talking about this topic, and again, our goal to finish up this series. I don't know, every time I write a little more, it gets longer and longer and longer, and we are going to deviate just a little bit today from it, but it'll still be in the same realm. Uh, but I don't know, I just can't seem to stay away from rabbit trails, even though they're already predetermined. But nonetheless, as a rule, don't raise your voice. Okay, communicating, all right? We're going to talk a little bit about that, and then I'm going to give you a couple of uh, thoughts about fighting fair. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time together. We are grateful for all you do for us, and we're grateful, Father, for your love, your mercy, your grace. I ask that you would just bless now the service. May you just meet our needs. And again, as we address and deal with this idea, this thought of making marriage simple, Father, help us, Lord, just to learn uh, that it doesn't have to be complicated, that we can communicate and do all the things necessary in a marriage that will bring joy and happiness and contentment. Lord, we don't have to be fighting and struggling and bickering and complaining all the time. Help us, Lord, just to make marriage simple as we implement your blueprint. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So as a rule, don't raise your voices. Well, in the book of Proverbs, turn there if you would, please, Proverbs 15.1. This is probably, I mean, it's a staple passage. I mean, this one ought to be on the forefront of our minds all the time uh, as we address and deal with relationships in general, not just marriage. This one applies every every everything you can talk about, every relationship possible. <clears throat> Notice what it says in Proverbs 15.1. A principle for the ages here. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. You've been in a, a verbal battle before and things start to get a little heated and instead of calming and quieting down, you say something else that stirs the pot. It was in the spring of 1894. The Baltimore Orioles came to Boston to play a routine baseball game. But what happened that day was anything but routine. The Orioles, John McGraw, got into a fight with the Boston third baseman. It wasn't just a matter of minutes later that every player on the benches seemed to unload, just come off the bench, and boy, they were at it. There was a major brawl on the field. The warfare, unfortunately, spread into the grandstands. Among the fans, the conflict went from bad to worse. 
Someone set fire to the stands and the entire ballpark burned to the ground. Not only that, <laughs> some people are laughing over here. They think that's funny. But anyway, <laughs> you sick people. But anyway, <clears throat> the warfare quickly spread to the grandstand. Then among the fans again, the conflict went from bad to worse, as we said. They set fire to the stands. Now here's the thing. Not only did the ballpark burn to the ground, <clears throat> but the fire spread to 107 other Boston buildings. All over a fight on the field. Now that is rather humorous. It's so ridiculous, it's funny. And yet it is representative of our relationships in many cases. We get to dis in a discussion with somebody, we get maybe into a little bit of a heated discussion, and it just seems to go uh, to the next level and then to the next level. <clears throat> and if we're not careful and we don't control the tone of our voices, it can get pretty ugly real quick. I mean, nobody ever expected for all that real estate to come burning down, but it did. I mean, it seems that we get angry, then we start yelling, and pretty soon we're fighting, and then who knows what lengths we can go to. We read that couples bicker on average about 2,400 times a year. It's been at least certain studies have shown that anywhere from 2,000 to 2,400 times a year. It could be money issues. <clears throat> they say money issues, laziness, and not listening are among the top gripes for couples. Snoring, driving too fast, and what to have for dinner are also common sources of tension, a survey found. And that's something. So if you're going to fight, you better fight fair, right? And let's be honest, we've all been in a few fights that weren't too fair. Maybe we were the one that were causing the problem, or maybe somebody else was. But we've all been there where things have gotten a little out of hand. <clears throat> in a marriage, you just can't afford to let things like that go on. So let me help you a little bit, the best I can, giving you just a couple, a few suggestions. Number one, never personally attack your mate. I'm not talking about like attack, you know. <clears throat> okay, that one's out of the question, right? We don't want to be doing that. You may feel like doing that. Your hands may be actually making a motion toward that, but you can't, you know. <clears throat> so you can criticize the problem, but not your partner. That's where it gets difficult. You can't talk to your spouse and, you know, you got to be careful how you deal with them. Too often we attack the person instead of the problem. You know, dinner's not ready, the house is not kept, the husband comes home, and he just goes off. He doesn't address the problem. He, he attacks the person by saying, you're just lazy. Well, is that really the problem? It might be the root problem. And at some point, character issues may need to be addressed. But I can tell you, in many cases, we just need to fix the problem. Now, if there's a problem with laziness, whether it's the guy or the gal, you got big problems. That's not something you yelling or screaming about is going to fix. I can guarantee you that. But the fact is, too many times we're addressing or we're attacking a person when we should be addressing and dealing with a problem. And that happens quite often in marriages. You know, one of the reasons why we go to marriage counselors or we go to the pastor at times is because we just can't seem to fight without bringing up personal issues. The problem doesn't get addressed. We attack each other. And every time we get into a conversation, it turns into another attack fest. And we think we can never get anywhere. It only gets worse all the time. It's because we're not really addressing the problems. We're attacking the person. Even if the impression is that you're attacking, it can be very awkward. Now, again, I'm going to be honest. There, there are issues that you have to deal with that are going to bring a lot of pain. And sometimes it might not be easy to deal with them, but... In most cases, if we would just deal with the problem, you know, it usually goes to a personal level. Once it gets at a personal level, it gets personal. And it's hard to recover from personal things like that. By the way, don't play the blame game. That's a bad one too, isn't it? You know, where it's always someone else's fault. It's never your fault. We blame others and 
uh, you know, basically the moment you start blaming it, you're attacking someone. That's how they feel, at least. You know? So be careful with that. Never personally attack your mate. Never personally attack your spouse. Don't do that. Number two, don't read your partner's mind. We addressed that already. We've talked about it. But let's face it, that one's a real, that, that, that one happens all the time, doesn't it? You know, <clears throat> do yourself a favor. Don't tell your spouse how they feel. Well, I know what you're thinking, and I know how you feel. Really? Well, what you're really, you really want to tell me this. Oh, yeah? Well, you read my mind? You, well, you think everybody's, oh, you're reading my mind again. They have this statement, you know, psychologists do, never project your feelings onto them. Project. I don't know exactly what all that means, but I know it's not good. Don't do it. Again, that only leads to fighting battles that don't really exist. When we start to perceive or somehow kind of convince ourselves that we know what our spouse is always thinking in the midst of a heated fight, especially if it gets somewhat emotional, man, we are just creating more points in order to fight about. Be careful with that. So don't read your partner's mind. Fight fair. Just let them say what they're going to say, hear what they have to say, and take it. Don't assume you know what they're thinking. Number three, don't constantly bring up the past. Now you say, I know all these things. Then start doing them. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know how easy it is to know the truth but not do it? So don't constantly bring up the past. This is probably one of the most common complaints of couples, honestly. And um, when we bring up past issues or especially past failures, it doesn't do a whole lot to fix the problem. It, it compounds the problem. Well, I still remember when. And it wasn't that long ago I asked you to, you know that I never got over it when you said, eh. you constantly bring up the past, you're never going to solve any present day problem. You're going to constantly refight and have to deal with the same problem over and over and over and over again. It's not gonna, you're not going to get anywhere. You can't keep fighting the battle of the past over and over again and still think that you can move forward in your relationship. It doesn't work that way. Sooner or later, you've got to let the past go. You have to, either, you have to forgive, obviously. That's a whole other issue altogether. And you've got to be able to move forward. But if you keep bringing up the past, it's a problem. Now, guys are notorious for saying to their wives, why do you always bring that up? But I got a feeling that sometimes guys do the same thing. Now, if there's an issue that hasn't been addressed in your marriage and you've been kind of like suppressing it and it continues to eat at you, then you need to bring that up. You need to be honest enough to deal with it. You know, a lot of times we get so afraid of how the, what the response is going to be that instead of addressing and dealing with what we consider to be a problem that really gripes us and bothers us, instead we won't deal with it at all for fear of how they're going to respond. And as a result, our marriage continues to spiral downward. You'd be better off to take a chance on losing your marriage than living in a crummy one. Did you hear what I said? Hey, listen, first of all, okay, let me give you a piece of advice from the school of Mark O'Donnell in the Bible. You can go ahead and do whatever you want. I would never sign divorce papers. But I'll tell you this much, I'm not going to continue to live in a terrible marriage and not do anything about it. Just endure it. I don't, I don't think that's the way God intended us to face and deal with problems, let alone marriages. If you've got a problem with somebody, you go to them one-on-one, -on -one, don't you? And then if that doesn't work and you've got some issues, maybe you need to bring in the Calvary a little bit. I'm just saying, maybe you need to try to face your spouse instead of just simply cowering down. And then you find out that, oh, I let that go, and 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 I let that go. And now I'm so bitter, I'm so angry, I'm so upset. I can't stand it. I won't forgive them. I'm done with them. I'm finished. That's where it gets. 
But on the other hand, you can't keep bringing up the past either. You say you forgive, you got to forget the best you can. Someone says, yeah, well, that's God. He can forget, we can't. That's right, but if you keep bringing it up, my friend, you'll be responsible for wrecking and ruining your marriage. Well, they're the one that did it originally. Yeah, well, you're the one that keeps bringing it back up and making it a problem and keeps ripping that scab open every time. Comes a point you better deal with it yourself. It's not always their problem to deal with. Once they've dealt with it biblically and scripturally, then you better deal with it biblically and scripturally. Didn't say it was easy. It's just the reality of things. Number four, stay on topic. Stay on topic. Deal with one problem at a time. This one is, this one convolutes everything. It messes everything up. In some cases, we change the topic, though, don't we? Now watch this. I was extremely good at this years ago. This was my specialty. I'm not joking. I was pretty good at this. In some cases, we change the topic in order to find the high ground. I'm not talking about the moral high ground. I'm talking about the battle high ground. You know, anytime you're in a war, you want the high ground. You want to be looking down, not up at. And we can feel ourselves, when we feel ourselves losing ground in an argument, sometimes we'll redirect the conversation or that argument to another subject in order to reestablish our position. So we're losing the argument over here a little bit. We feel it slipping away. We bring up another point that we know we can win. So we redirect it. Because I will not lose this fight. I win at all costs. I'm telling you, I was pretty good at it. That was a long time ago. Enough spankings and discipline by my wife, and I learned different. (laughs) She's not in here, I can say that. Hey, let's face it, those kind of things never end well. They only get worse because what are we doing? We're just perpetuating the battle. We're never dealing with the real problem. I know some of you are going, I I would never do that. Well, I guarantee you there are those that do. And and then let's try another one here. Five, tame your tongue. And when I talk about that, and I'm going to be honest with you, can I I just be, I'm going to be really frank here. And I'm not going to cuss or anything like you might. But, (laughs) and that's what I want to tell you. I'm going to tell you, if you're a Christian today and you're in there fighting with your husband or wife and you're cussing, you're an idiot. You stinking hypocrite. You are a big L loser. Your children are listening to you, claim to be a Christian, showing up at church all the time, and here you are cussing like some stormtrooper. Who do you think you are? Well, I'm mad. Who cares what you are? You're an idiot. I'm sorry, but I can't stand that kind of... That, that is ridiculous. Well, I just get upset. My flesh takes over. Oh, that makes it okay. Do you understand how ridiculous that is? That's like saying, well, I punched my wife in the face. She got me angry, so, you know, hey, it is what it is. I beat my kid half senseless. They're in the hospital today because they backtalked me. What, you got upset? That gives you the right to act like a fool? So I cuss at my wife, and I think that that's supposed to show her how I'm a real man. My wife throws pans, gets all upset, and cusses at me, and that she's all right with that because that's her way of getting back because you don't understand what I have to put up with, preacher. Okay, go ahead. Act a fool like that and wonder why God's power isn't in your marriage. It's not on your life. It's not in your family. And wonder why your children turn out for Satan. Well, we're good Christians when everything's going smoothly. Well, you'll see how that turns out. I, we play too many games. We are two-faced. Oh, I, me and my wife, we just love the church. We love the pastor. 
We, we love everybody here. We're all such blessing, and we just, our, our marriage is so sweet and so wonderful. You get home, and I see, you know, you're cussing each other out. Tell me how that turns out for you. I'm sorry. I, I told you. I'm going to get a little bit blunt. I don't like it. It bothers me to no end. Amen. That kind of stuff. Amen. The neighbors are listening to it. We'd love you all to come to church with us. God bless you. And they're thinking, dude, wasn't it just you? I heard you guys out in the garage the other day. Can I, I'm going to be honest with you. Can I, can I be honest with you? I wouldn't be surprised if it happens in people in this group right here. We let our flesh get so controlling us. We let our emotions get out of control. And somebody thinks that would never happen in a Christian marriage. Okay. I tell you, I hope it never happens in yours. Tame your tongues. Hey, well, hey let, me, let me tell you another thing to avoid with your tongue. Here, listen now. Watch it. I'm done. Let's end this. I want a divorce. Mm. That's not a good thing to say when you're in a fight. That's not good. No, that, that, that's not good. You may be desperate to get their attention, or maybe you just want to hurt them. I don't know. But either way, I promise you this, it's going to breed insecurity, and it's ultimately going to backfire on you. That's not going to, you will not, that will not, listen, if you're really a Christian tonight, I'm telling you, you should be willing to do whatever it takes to save your marriage. I promise you it isn't threatening to divorce all the time. And you guys, you better start waking up. Women are not what they used to be. They don't take it like they used to take it. Some cases it's scriptural, sometimes it's just downright unscriptural. But I'm going to tell you something. You better stop believing somehow that she's a Christian. She'll never do that to me. You better start facing the problems and, not think, and just keep trying to sweep them under the rug like everything's going to be okay. It won't be, I promise you. You better deal with it. She ain't just going to let you walk all over her if that's what you're doing. It ain't going to happen no more. Those days are done. Like they say, those were the good old days. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about, but you ladies are going, hey, we, we fixed that problem. We got a hold of that one, preacher. That one's over with. And you know what? I, listen, I'm, I'm, I believe a wife ought to be submissive. I, it's biblical. But I also think a husband ought to love his wife. It works both ways, folks. Works both ways. Stay, just tame your tongue. Your bad words are like bullets. Once they're out, you don't get them back. Ask yourself, when you get into one of these heated battles and you start saying things you know you shouldn't be saying, ask yourself, am I arguing to get closer or am I arguing to hurt my spouse? And by the way, if you say something that's hurtful, why don't you use that same tongue that hurt to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. You didn't deserve that. I messed up. I didn't mean that. So funny how quick we are to say derogatory things, but when it comes to apologizing, we are the last ones that'll do it. After the way the Lord Jesus Christ forgave us, you would think Christians would be the first ones to truly seek forgiveness from others. But our Christianity is about that deep and about that wide. And we wonder why we're struggling in our marriages in the Christian faith. You can't control your spouse. They're going to do what they're going to do. The idea that one person can save a marriage doesn't work that way. Now, God, obviously, we pray, we beg God to do something, but I'm going to promise you this. There are two people in a marriage, and both of them have to want the same thing if it's going to stay. But you can do your part. Do your part, and then let God worry about the rest.
Tame your tongue. Then finally, you need to keep this in mind. No matter the outcome, you're married. Do you hear what I said? No matter the outcome, you're married. And long after the fight is over and the damage is done, you'll still be married. You, you better be careful how you approach these battles and these fights. See, when we enter into a marriage and, and we haven't settled that we're fixed on this, then there are always options. But for the believer who comes to the conclusion that God put us together and we are going to stay no matter what, you get pushed into a corner, you're going to fight. Yes. But you'll be fighting for something, not to get out of it. Again, you can't control the other person. They choose to take a hike or walk out, that's their business. You can't control that. But you better do things God's way and fight to keep it, not to get out of it. It's a funny thing. Make the best of what you got because it's all you got. And if we would understand that, we, we got to enter into it that way and we have to live that way. Otherwise, it makes it too easy to get out of it. Number eight now, moving on. Remember that disagreement is not necessarily bad and it isn't always a personal attack. How many of you got gnats flying around you? Yeah, I know, I just had one land on my, and I was going to go like that, but it wasn't really in the notes. No, I'm teasing, but anyway. <clears throat> I had somebody, somebody came to me the other day and said, preacher, when you, when you bang on your Bible, do you have that in the notes? I said, no, not really. Uh, notice I said not really. No, I'm teasing. I, I don't, it's not in there. <laughs> so number eight, we said number seven, of course, was, I got to find it here. As a rule, don't raise your voices. Number eight is, remember, disagreement's not necessarily bad, and it isn't always a personal attack. This is a problem today. And can I tell you, it's only getting worse. We live in a society that promotes an attitude of victimization. It, it's, really, it's really a bad situation. Now, you know, the reality is, is that men in general are extremely insecure. And so the moment that their authority is questioned, in many cases, until they've learned to be secure in who and what they are, they take it as a personal attack. But this problem, as I said, only continues to just get worse and worse and worse. And it's not just some insecure guys, young couples, or something like that. I mean, we're talking about children right on through adults, people my age and older even, that are really struggling with this issue of an attitude of victimization. By teaching a doctrine of entitlement, We've raised a generation of adults and children who view themselves as victims. Now, I told you I was going to deviate a little bit, and I'm going to because I'm, I'm really having a problem with some of these things today. Now, they take, listen, folks take everything personal, and they feel like they're being attacked at every turn today. If they're called a name, they're looked at cross-eyed, they're betrayed by a friend. They're not invited to a party. They're dumped by a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They're not hired for the job. They're overlooked for the promotion. They're not given a treat. They're told no. They're corrected. They're rebuked. They're disciplined. They feel like they've been victimized today. My girlfriend left me. I didn't deserve that. Oh, you're a victim. You've been taught. See, you didn't think you deserved that. What's that? Entitlement. And it's led to victimization, a victim mentality. And again, it's all a result of a sense of entitlement. And you know what? It's really, it's really in vogue today. It's really popular. Everybody wants to be a victim today. 
We wear it like a badge today. I'm a victim. (laughs) And the funny thing is about a victim is that you can't tell them how how to feel. You can't tell them whether they're right or wrong because you don't know what I've been through. You don't know how hurt I am. Victims. And we're raising a generation of it. We're perpetuating it in our homes by teaching our children to feel entitled. And then when they don't get what they think they deserve, they feel like they've been targeted as victims. So what are some of the attitudes that we see with this victimization? Well, first of all, people that are victims often, they take a particular stance. They blame others, often authority figures, mind you, when that authority doesn't meet, when, when they don't meet their responsibilities. So they're blaming other people all the time. It's not my fault. You don't understand. I didn't get much sleep. That's why I couldn't be at church. It's not my fault. I only got six hours of sleep, preacher. I got off at two in the morning and church isn't until 11, but you don't realize how late it was when I got to bed. It was at least 2.30. You, you laugh at that? I've had people imply that to me. You know what it is. I, I'm sorry, but, oh, poor baby. We're victims. It's not my fault. Someone says, did, did anybody in our family tell him that about themselves? Or, No, I haven't heard that in a long time, but I've heard it before. It's been at least a month. No, I'm teasing. It's been longer now. Always having an excuse ready. They always got an excuse ready, no matter what it is. Well, well, why aren't you going to work today? Well, you know, I haven't been feeling good. And then the next time it's, well, you know, I had an extra day. Well, I didn't really have a day off, but over at the workplace, I got into it with my buddy the other day, and I I just didn't feel comfortable going in. And then the next time, well, you know, I hurt my arm. There's always an excuse. Also, victim stance, fighting for the right to be a victim. Again, it's always someone else's fault. I've been hurt. I've been harmed. It's not my fault. Injustice. They view normal expectations as being unfair. Those standards are too high. Sure, for you, that's fine, but that isn't fine for me. They refuse to follow what are perceived as unfair directions or or commands. You're always expecting me to do that. Especially with children, we see it all the time. But can I tell you, adults are doing the same thing. At work, the boss says, I want you to have that, that report done by first thing in the morning. Don't they know I have a life? I don't understand it. They've been telling you that for a month, and now you hold off all the way till the, tonight, and they're saying, don't forget about it tomorrow morning. Hey, that's your fault. But I'm a victim. My boss is unreasonable. Expecting me to get that in by morning. Complaining that circumstances for misbehavior are unfair. Or consequences, excuse me. Complaining that the consequences. I came in late three times. You'd think I killed somebody. They're always picking on me. I'm my buddy next to me. He's been late four times. They let him off the hook, but they nailed me. Victim. They're a victim. Then it just, victims are unique too, by the way. They claim that they're different, and thus because they're different, they, just, they, they, they need different rules. They accuse others of not understanding them. You just don't understand me. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't understand how I, have, how I feel. You don't realize what I've had to deal with. Victims. They focus on that lack of understanding rather than the real issues. You can't address the real issue because, you know, it always goes back to you just don't understand. 
Your child comes home from school, you get a note, and the teacher says he hasn't been doing his homework, and you say, whoa, 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 I told him to do his homework. Hey, didn't I tell you to do your homework? You, well, Mom, you just don't understand. I've been, I, I was out playing with my friend, and, and there's always an excuse. The expectations are just unfair. You don't realize, you just don't understand how they feel, what they're going through, therefore, mm, victim. And then they lose control of their behavior and they claim that it couldn't be helped. I can't help myself. If you've been through what I've been through, if you've been traumatized like me, you'd lose your temper too. Now listen, we may not tell people that, but we think it sometimes. It's called victim. It's a victim mentality. Then we try to train other people to avoid making us feel responsible. Or we use anger to have power over people and things. Try to intimidate people all the time. That victim mentality is a serious business. Can I tell you that the victim mentality is seen so clearly today in what we call identity politics? Yeah, I'm going to talk about identity politics. One author spoke in these terms. They said this. I used to believe that in identity politics, I used to believe in identity politics because it told me you and your experience matter. Your identity gives you authority. Your beliefs can't be invalidated because your identity can't be invalidated. You say, what are you talking about, preacher? What I'm talking about is this. Because I'm a homosexual, you can't tell me this, 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 or this. I'm right because I am a homosexual. I identify as a male and I'm really a female. But you don't have a right to tell me that. And my position politically is what it is because I see myself as a woman although I'm a man. And I'm right. You have no right to tell me different. See, facts don't matter. All that matters is your identity. My identity validates my opinion and my outlook. I can't be wrong because I am a, or I, my identity is all that matters. You don't know my reality. You, don't, you didn't grow up like me. You can't possibly understand my plight. See, I'm black. I'm a woman. I'm gay. I'm a transgender. I'm fat. I'm skinny. I'm handicapped. I've been abused. I'm a felon. And that's how we identify. And because we identify that way, it affects and skews our view of right, wrong, and truth. That's what's going on in politics today. Identity politics. See, you don't have a right to tell me I'm wrong because I am... You know what I'm saying? And you know where that all comes from? It all started a long time ago when we started raising a generation of entitled youngsters who then became victims. And now you can't tell them they're right or wrong. And it doesn't even matter what the facts are because they identify with who they believe themselves to be. And their identity is what defines them. And identity defines what right is and what wrong is and what truth is and what untruth is. Now, interestingly enough, Martin Luther King made this statement. He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they'll not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Wouldn't it, be a wonder, wouldn't it be wonderful if all men and women would simply view themselves and others based upon the content of their character? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could look at the facts of a case instead of the color of skin? White, black, Asian, Hispanic lives, in my opinion, are all equal, at least biblically, scripturally. They're all important. They all have value. 
Identity politics, however, has validated certain races and vilified others. That's dangerous, and it is extremely divisive. It's going to backfire in the long run, and eventually it's going to erode the foundation of our nation. Let me tell you something. This mentality is finding its way into the church. Well, I know what the Word of God says, and I know what the preacher says, but you just don't understand where I I am. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know how what? You identify it? Because you identify yourself as a victim, then nobody has a right to tell you you're wrong? Because your feelings are validated because of your position or your, you would say here, identity? It's, It's finding its way into the church. The United States has been described as the melting pot of the world, but as of late, it's been relegated to nothing more than tribalism. Every group's claiming the right to special treatment based upon their identity. We can go ahead and blame the president. You blame whoever you want for all of the division, but let me tell you something. When everybody's fighting for their individualism in a, in a, in a place like America that's supposed to be a melting pot, that's where the division's coming from. When the rules no longer apply or special treatment is extended to specific groups, that's called favoritism, by the way, there's bound to be resentment and retaliation. We are quickly becoming uncivilized, and identity politics is promoting this unrest in our society. And let me tell you, what you see in the world is hitting our churches. It's going to destroy us from the inside out if we're not careful. The Bible is very clear that we are one in Christ and we are a body and we're to fit together. We're members of one another. We have to be very careful that we don't allow this identity philosophy to filter into the church because pretty soon the word of God will be dismissed and the only thing that will really matter is our own personal feelings about who we are, what we are, and what is right and wrong. And let me tell you, that'll rip and destroy the church to pieces. We see what it's doing to a country now. We used to say things like, well, the world is, is here and the church is here, and as the world goes further into the, to sin, the church continues to follow. If that is indeed the case, then let me tell you, everything we see in the world, divisively speaking, is going to end up in the church house if we as believers don't do something about it. In your marriage, you better be careful that you don't find yourself a victim. Stop being a victim. Stop feeling entitled. Be very careful with this. By the way, fellas, when your wife disagrees with you, don't take it as a personal attack on your manhood. We are so insecure. Just because she doesn't agree with what you plan to do with the income tax return or how to discipline your son or daughter, or what kind of vehicle to purchase. That doesn't necessarily mean that she's trying to undermine your authority or attack you as a person. You know what? The truth is, last time I checked, she's a helpmeet. I would think you'd want her opinion. I think you'd want to at least ask her what she thinks. Preacher, thank you. You're a blessing. You've outlined to us what's really going on in America. You've helped us to understand. Let me tell you something. You better start figuring it out. We're in a mess in America. Go ahead and bury your head in the sand if you want. We got problems on the horizon. The church is going to go through some things it has never dreamed it would ever go through, I think. We better be prepared. And it's not going to help us to simply debate what's right and wrong. We better find out what God says is right and wrong. You talk about stress on a marriage, wait till daddies are getting thrown in jail one day and there's no money and banks are closing. 401Ks are being depleted. And listen, I I don't know what's going to happen and when it's going to happen, but I can tell you this, it don't look good. We better start thinking about things. We better sure up the home ground. 
Better get solid where we stand here in our own faith and then in the faith of our family. And our marriages better get strong and our churches better be prepared and, and, and in lockstep with one another. When the battle hits, and I mean the giants are going to come, we're going to need each other. You're especially going to need your spouse. And if your spouse isn't here any longer and they are going to heaven, then you're going to need each other. We're going to need each other here. Number nine, I did digress quite a bit. Thank you. <laughs> I did. I know. I admit it. Number nine, and finally, this is the last one, to borrow from an old Nike commercial. Just do it. Communicate. Just do it. You got to communicate. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14 says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, longsuffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Put on charity. If we can't put on charity toward our spouse, there ain't much hope of us putting on charity toward one another. We've got to start loving one another, caring about one another in our marriages. And then it needs to affect and permeate and actually reach out into our church community, our church family. I'm not a gloom and doom person. I really ain't. And that's not proper English. I understand that. But I, I'll, I'll tell you... <clears throat> I think more than ever, <clears throat> as I watch what's going on over these last six, eight months, I'm convinced that I better get a little more serious about this. Amen. We think we've experienced loss in our lives, hurt and heartache. There's a potential for hurt and heartache we never dreamed. The only way we're going to get through it is if our walk in relationship with the Lord is what it ought to be and the grace of God will carry us through. I just want to encourage you, get closer to Jesus Christ. Let's stop playing games with the Lord. Let's realize that this is real, what's going on in our world, and it's a mess. Hey, there's no rationality to any of this. This is irrational. It's not rooted in facts, none of it. I'm not just talking about COVID. I'm talking about everything else that's going on. You better be careful. You better sure up the home ground. Have a place where you can come home and have a haven. There's no better place in this world I'd rather be than my household. I go home and I feel like, whoo. You better have that in your life. You're going to need it because out there it's only going to get worse. That's not very encouraging, I know. But I think it encur should encourage us to do what we need to do with this book and to do what we ought to do with our families and our relationships. We're worrying about making money, worrying about building houses and lands. We better be worried about building relationships and building our marriages. Because in the long run, that may be all we have is each other. And when it's all said and done, the only thing we may have is just us and him. So make sure you're working on that one first and foremost. Father, we thank you for all you do for us. Lord, I, uh, <clears throat> I do want our families to grow stronger in you. This idea that everything's going to just go on like normal, that everything's going to be fine, that there'll never be any issues. Lord, we can't live life and not run up against some circumstances and situations that are difficult. But Lord, it just seems like the earth is, that our country is poised for really having some real problems. And I just pray that, Lord, we would avoid it. I pray that we would see revival break out in our country, that people would recognize the need for Christ in their personal life and in their marriages, their homes, their families, that they'd see a need for Christ in their, their churches as well as in their communities. Lord, I want that. That's what I want. I want that to fix the problem. I want a supernatural outpouring of your Holy Spirit to bring truth to our hearts and our lives and to give us perspective, a biblical perspective. Lord, the devil, he wants nothing to do with that. He's going to do all he can to continue to blind people, to deceive. And Lord, sadly enough, he will do all he can to blind and deceive the people of God. And Lord, we need strong marriages and we need strong homes and families. 
And we need secure faith in Christ as individuals. I pray that, Lord, you'd help us not to dismiss the urgency of this time in which we live. May we truly take time to know you, to get to know your word, to spend time in fellowship with you, and, Lord, to do our best to strengthen our marriages and our homes and our relationships. We need you now. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I came back from the conference and I told the staff, I said, listen, I want to start praying for revival. Listen, I I heard things there that uh, this, honestly, I'm going to tell you something. This scratches the surface from what I heard there. But can I tell you, as I sat in that conference room with those leaders, I said, in my opinion, the only thing that's going to change anything is revival in our country. And I would not stand and proclaim the truth of the word of God if I didn't believe that God could still do it today. Now, listen, I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying that I know God can. And he's, gonna, he's looking to us to pray and to beg him and to work hard to see people's lives transformed and changed. Maybe we can't reach the country with a revival, but we could reach our homes. We could reach our own life and then our marriages and then our homes and maybe our community and even our country. I don't know. That's God's business. But if America doesn't see revival, a revival of truth back to the Word of God, it is not going to get better in the long run. It will only get worse. Well, if we hopefully get President Trump in there, yeah, well, President Trump, yeah, whatever. I'm telling you that four more years is not going to save our nation. Sooner or later, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to just what it is. We have freedom to go out on streets and preach. We've got freedoms to knock doors. We've got freedom to do so many things right now in our country. I promise you, there are people in the wings waiting to get control so that we can, they can take those away from us. Now, that doesn't mean we would be able to stop. We just have to keep doing it at whatever cost. That's where it gets tricky, isn't it? Because then all of a sudden, <laughs> well, we're not going there. But let's use what we have. We have a freedom right now. Let's use it. Let's not squander it. Let's not waste it. Build that relationship with that husband or wife. Become stronger than ever. Be prepared. So when opposition comes, you can stand together, not be divided. 